Chapter 8 The Limits of Our Optimizations Deep in his heart, every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. John Eldridge We're going to go off script before this chapter even begins because we need to right a wrong. I need to make a phone call because there's a lady who needs to hear this chapter who has no idea of how important of a role she plays in the story. Hello? Hi, Charlene. This is Jim Harmer. Do you remember me? I do indeed remember you. <laughs> Are you kidding? Of course I remember. <laughs> it's been a long time uh, since I've had any it communication has. with you. Um, I, I just wanted to call and tell you a story because of uh, something important you did in my life that you have no idea about. Okay, so I'll just read you just a couple paragraphs. In business, my greatest weakness is my ready-fire-aim mentality. I get an idea and go after it like a rocket before taking important preparatory steps. That weakness sometimes slows the steady growth of my work and business, but when there's an emergency in the business and a decision has to be made with imperfect information and few resources, that weakness is my greatest asset. While in hindsight, I can see the problem of visionary poison clouding my business and causing catastrophic results, I didn't understand what was happening at the time. I took a few days at home, away from the office, to think things through. I just needed to reset and figure it all out. No clear answer came. I had done everything right according to what I'd learned. I never sat complacently. I had expanded like crazy. I wasn't exactly sure what was wrong in the business, but we went from $40,000 a month to $10,000 a month. All I saw was that our traffic was consistent to the website we had far better products, and yet far fewer customers were buying. Without an answer, there was only one path forward. If I couldn't increase the revenue to the business, I had to cut expenses. To the bone. Emily and I prayed, worried, and stressed, but the only conclusion we could find was that I have to walk onto the orange carpet in the office and tell my employees they were all being laid off. How could this have happened? I walked in on a Monday morning and sat down with my little team. I met with them individually and told them I simply couldn't justify the expense of employees and an office when the business was shrinking. I gave them as much notice as possible and I gave them as much severance as I could possibly afford, but I told them I had to let them go, all of them. When they left the office that morning, I broke down in tears. I was completely alone in that office with no answers as to how to fix the problem. I let my team down. My dream was slipping from my grasp. My business had become what I was known for, and it was disappearing. I stuck my neck out when I went rogue from law school, and now I had a shell of a business left. I had too much pride to admit to friends and family what was happening. I said things like, we're still making great money, but we realize that having the extra employees just isn't giving us an ROI. It was true, kind of. But I'm ashamed to say that the truer truth was something I couldn't admit to anyone else. I felt like a failure because the shrinking business came right after my work energy. I wanted to appear successful in front of others. Look, Ma, I tried a business and it failed catastrophically hit me harder than it may have for others. I took a selfie in front of the door to the office that day after the office emptied. 
It was the lowest day of my entire life. But for some reason, I knew I wanted to remember it. Somehow, I knew I'd look back at some future point and say, remember that? It all looked so bleak that day. Yet, it was all very bleak that day. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There were no more solutions to consider. I had no idea how to get out of the box I'd put myself in. The very next day, I came into the office, alone this time. I turned down the thermostat and put on a coat to save some money as if that would save me. I mostly stared at the computer and wondered what all those numbers were trying to tell me about where I had failed. Around 10 a.m., I heard the squeak of a tiny metal mail slot in the front door. A few letters slid through. I flipped through the mail and found a blue-rimmed Christmas card with a nice picture of a blue jay on the front. I curiously turned it around and found these words handwritten on the back. Dear Jim, it might be a little strange for me to be sending you a Christmas card since you don't know me, but I took your photography course this year and it helped me to take better pictures. The picture of the bird on the front of this card is one of my favorites that I took this year. Just wanted to let you know that your work is making a difference. Merry Christmas. Charlene, that card was from you. It was. Uh, it came at a really critical point for me. I just wanted to call and tell you what it meant to me because, um, I mean, just the day before I had to let everyone go. And then a stranger, I've never met you, <laughs> sent me a Christmas card right? because, you, because you took someone's online class online. What prompted you to do that? Well, I can tell you that um, I'm not a professional photographer. It was never my um, goal to be a professional photographer. I am a retired teacher. I'm a musician. Um, and I started taking pictures when I worked a part-time job at the Nature Center after I left the world of public school teaching. And it was just a, I mean, it was literally a field day for photographs. So I needed to be able to take better pictures. And so when I did, I, I, I mean, you need to do something with your pictures besides just leave them on your card or on your hard drive. And one of the things that I do is to make greeting cards with them and Another thing that I do with them is to make calendars that I that I give out as gifts yearly. You know, it's just something personal from me. So um, the whole idea of making a greeting card is something that I do do. Um, and I guess I just felt like I needed you to know that that what you were doing was making a difference. After I received that card, I remember just feeling like I just felt like I had let everyone down and I wasn't sure how to fix it or what I was going to do. And it just gave me a little bit of confidence and support <laughs> that I really needed at that moment. And I mean, just the next day I came into the office and I felt like, okay, we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure out how to reach more people again. And we did, and we were able to turn things around, and the business has been incredibly successful since then. But your card is something that just really helped me to turn that corner. And so I, I just wanted to call you and thank you because it's not right for, for, uh, for you to have done something so right and to have never known the impact it had on me. 
She could not have done a kinder thing for me at that moment. I still have the card. You'll recall that my work energy is fed when I achieve difficult things so I can feel the praise of that effort being accepted or admired by others. With the numbers in my business lagging, which had always been the thing that drove me forward, I was especially low. Praise was what fed my work energy, and this Christmas card was just the medicine I needed. I still had two months remaining on the lease of the building, so I continued working from the orange carpet instead of working from home. My desk sat in a large 20 by 30 space right in the middle with nothing else in the room. Nothing on the walls, no people in the other rooms of the office, just me, working 10 to 12 hours a day in an empty, musty office in historic Nampa, Idaho. Trains passed by regularly and shook the walls, but I barely noticed as I focused my attention on my keyboard. I determined my best path forward was to come up with a new product type unaffected by the grenade I'd thrown into our marketing of the online courses. It was August. I could see Black Friday on the horizon, which is the biggest shopping day of the year in the United States. My plan was to come up with a product so good that customers had to buy. I would turn on every marketing trick I had ever learned. The offer would be limited for only 48 hours. The product would be something that would show well in a sales video, and I'd send tremendous traffic to the sales page. I put together my offer. I created several bundles of presets for Lightroom. These are photo filters for serious photographers. Each bundle of 20 presets would normally be $40, but I included multiple bundles and added a webinar, a new photography course, and more. I made the entire package $40. It would normally cost over $1,000 to get all of the digital items individually after the sale had ended. I figured if that didn't sell, nothing would sell. Bleak is the only word I can think of to describe that time. I was depressed in a way I'd never been before. In hindsight, I really should have met with a doctor as I was barely able to function. I was so exhausted I felt I couldn't get up in the morning. The only thing keeping me going was the encouragement of Emily and the possibility of this new Black Friday sale. That was the only time in my life where I could say I was truly depressed. Like everyone, I have my own struggles and downtimes, but looking back, this was more than that. The greatest stress for me was the loss of who I was. I had been a poor law student. I was known to family and friends as the one who went rogue and started a company. I was so proud of that little company's growth. Just about everyone I knew had seen me as a success. My company had become an essential part of the story of who I told myself I was. Now that my story was one of failure, I couldn't shake it. There was a very real possibility that the best days of my career were behind me already. I have heard many entrepreneurs talk about not letting your company become your identity, and I then understood what they meant. I didn't even realize it had happened, but the company's story was my story. Intuitively, I knew I was more. My family, my faith, and my friends meant more to me than money. But it was the story of failure writing itself within me that affected me so deeply. I learned the importance of not allowing failure or success to define me. Writing these stories in your mind is dangerous. The story of failure says success does not come to you. The story of success says failure does not come to you. But every life will see both. I found that to be truly resilient, 
I needed to write my story to be a phrase I once heard, and sorry, I wish I could give credit, but I cannot remember where I heard it. <laughs> Here's the phrase. I've come through some tough spots in the past, but somehow I always seem to make it through. It is neither success nor failure. It's a story of resiliency. I spent months working tirelessly in the echoey office. I was relentless. Now, with very few expenses for the company, the business was earning more than enough to meet our needs, but it was the failure story that I had to rewrite. It wasn't all about pride, though. I saw my business cut to less than half of what it was doing before in a matter of months. If it happened again, I wouldn't know what to do. I could not allow that failure story to finish itself, or I knew I'd never get it out. It was two days until Black Friday. I opened the creaky door to walk on the orange carpet again. To be fair, it wasn't solid orange. There were flecks of yellow and brown in it. I spent 14 hours recording take after take of my sales video for my Black Friday flash deal. It had to be flawless. I recorded it so many times that now, even many years later, I can almost do it by memory. You can go back on YouTube and hear the whole pitch. Hey, photo nerds, if you're like me, you've taken lots of pictures that are okay, but which you can't quite get to that professional level. Black Friday. I woke up at midnight to press the launch button. I pressed publish on my carefully crafted sales video. I switched the yellow buy now button to the live link in the shopping cart, and I was open for business. I posted everywhere. I plastered it all over the website. I put up ads on Facebook and Google. I created YouTube videos. I did everything I could to get that message to the masses. It felt as if my entire career was dependent on what happened in the next hour. It all reminds me of when I was a kid on the morning of Hurricane Aniki. The storm was coming. The warning sirens were blaring along our street, which was steps away from Pearl Harbor. The military police drove up and down our neighborhood, telling everyone to get out. Something was coming, and we had no idea what it would be. That's how I felt. But rather than binge-watching the local news for weather information, I was refreshing my PayPal account as fast as I could press F5. First, nothing. Then, that satisfying notification of a first sale. Sales poured in with the ferocity of a hurricane. Within an hour, in the middle of the night, the sale had already brought in a few thousand dollars. I drove home in a blind numbness and slept for a few hours before rushing back to a computer to refresh. The sale was not going well. It was going unbelievably well. Thousands of dollars were pouring in every hour. On the first day, I made a $40 sale every 43 seconds. By the end of the sale, it had earned $150,000. In just a few days, I earned more than many Americans make in three years, and only 48 hours earlier, I thought my career could be over. I was discovering the potential of the internet all over again. While most businesses can only reach a certain percentage of a local population, I could reach the entire world from my laptop. As long as those orange dots kept popping up on the map, and if I could come up with a compelling offer to show those orange dots, I could stay in business. The potential was far more than I had previously imagined. 
It's difficult to explain what this success felt like. Just a few weeks prior, I had one of the saddest days in my life when I had to let my employees go and admit that my business was failing, that I was failing. Then, out of the clear blue, I brought in $150,000 in a few days. The traffic to the website was also growing strong, and more and more people began to know me through my website. In fact, often when I traveled, I was recognized in airports and around town. It was really fun that people would stop me and say, Hey, aren't you Jim Harmer from Improved Photography? I was just some dude blogging from a laptop. But people around the world began to recognize me. I was soon ranked as one of the top 40 most popular photographers in the world. I'd be lying if I didn't admit it was cool. Best of all, I had righted the failure story that was developing in my mind before it could finish embedding itself into my life story. Without realizing it, I had allowed my pride to make me start thinking of myself as a successful person. I didn't recognize how dangerous a success story can be to one's mental health, happiness, and ability to accept God's will. Success lasts until it doesn't, and you need to remain strong after the success fades. I've come through some tough spots in the past, and I always seem to make my way through it. The phrase that at some point I heard from an unknown source was now my own story. The resiliency story is the most liberating thing you can tell yourself. When you make a mistake or fail to reach a goal, it no longer throws you into a lengthy introspection about who you are. You're exactly the kind of person who tries really hard and sometimes fails hard anyway. When you see success, you no longer run the risk of forgetting the true source of your blessings. A bout of depression comes, and you take it in stride because you've been through some tough stuff before, and you always seem to make it through. You end up in a divorce, and you know you'll survive. When working in the last 10% of optimization toward a goal, it can be easy to hit mental limits, upper limits, that convince you there's no way to climb higher, or that you are out of place in a position of success. I also saw the power of weaknesses. None of us like our weaknesses, but I believe we are given our weaknesses for a reason. Weaknesses are a gift. Some people stress so much over finding their talent or calling in life. Want to know what your talent is? It's easy. Just think about your weakness. God probably gave you that so that you can grow something strong out of it. Emily has anxiety, and it helps her to be steady and reliable. Because new and unproven things make her anxious, she prefers to keep the status quo sometimes. Her weakness of anxiety helps to make our family happy by keeping us grounded and stable. Especially, I'll add, when I'm the one always adding in crazy things to our family. We balance each other out. Moses was slow of speech and tongue, meaning he was a poor public speaker, and that forced him to rely on God to show his miracles rather than relying on his own leadership talents. With a renewed focus on the core actions that drove 90% of my success, the business continued to grow. The next year, my number one goal was to reinforce the first two parts of my business that were working. Number one, driving sales to online courses by consistently publishing content that would bring in new potential customers. And number two, reinforcing the Black Friday flash sale. The goal was to simply build a moat around what I already had by adding marketing channels to products and improving the products themselves, rather than going out and starting a new social media presence for the company on a new platform or creating a new product. 
While I spent most of the year working on these goals, I also worked on diversifying the company's income. The opportunity for diversifying was in increasing passive gains on the website. I maintained the publishing schedule of new content that would produce 90% of the results in my company and optimized the last 10% by diversifying income streams and marketing. Basically, I was refocusing my company on 90% actions, the one or two things that brought in most of the result. And it worked. The company took off like a rocket that next year, and revenue jumped up substantially. The Black Friday sale that next year earned $250,000. How that money changed my family is difficult to describe. Emily and I walked around the house for a few weeks constantly remarking to ourselves how insane it was that we earned that much money from a website, from one sale, and the customers had loved the product. While we were extremely excited, it was also very painful. This part is difficult to describe unless you've been there. It's what Gay Hendricks and his book, The Big Leap, describes as an upper limit problem. A mental limitation we put on ourselves that can cause distress when we feel we are at a level of success where we don't belong. The upper limit problem. Remember the YouTube video about Kony 2012 from several years ago? The video highlighted the plight of the Ugandan people and called for the arrest of terrorist Joseph Kony by the end of the year 2012. The well-produced humanitarian video attracted over 100 million views many of them in an extremely short amount of time. The maker of the video was a very decent person who dedicated his time to humanitarian efforts and had a family. When his project was wildly successful and he finally got attention to the humanitarian issue, he had a mental breakdown almost immediately. A video was recorded of him walking around naked on a screaming tirade in his neighborhood, waving his hands around wildly and soiling himself. This good person who successfully accomplished a good thing had a complete mental breakdown. He later said in an interview with Oprah, The mind is a powerful thing, and when you feed it with this chaotic noise and everything else, you lose who you are. Again, I'm not sure I can fully explain what it was like for us to earn a quarter of a million dollars in a week after going through such struggles with the business. It was so sudden that it felt like I was losing who I was. I was spending so much time focused on money and work that I could feel myself slipping away. Emily felt the same. We were so stressed and anxious, and yet we felt like we had to double down on work in order to regain control. We immediately threw ourselves into planning the next flash sale and working on how we would invest the money we'd earned. We started looking at investment properties and decided which one we would buy. We spent weeks with a real estate agent finding the perfect investment property. We went to one house with renters in it. The house had an odd odor and a freakishly weird number of mattresses spread around the floor of nearly every room. As we inspected the house, Emily reached for the dishwasher and the guy renting the house flew across the room and physically stopped her from opening it. Weird, we thought. He said there were dirty dishes in there and, and it was embarrassing. I had a suspicion that there was something illegal in there. Then we went upstairs and looked through all of the rooms except for one room that had four deadbolts on it. Who puts four deadbolts on a bedroom door, I thought. 
I looked down and saw six extension cords from other power outlets throughout the house running underneath the door to that room. It was painfully obvious that this was a drug house, and it was hilarious seeing the guy living there trying to explain everything. Oh, this is my brother's room. He's a very private person, and he likes to charge his phone with lots of outlets. We looked at another house being sold significantly under market value because it had been torn apart by renters. There was urine and feces in nearly every room of the house. Something about drugs makes people want to go to the bathroom inside kitchen cabinets, apparently. With the extremely poor condition of the home and what we'd calculated on a total gut of the house, we saw the potential for an extremely good investment. The housing market was still depressed, and it was likely we could double our money in just four years. It was a few weeks before Christmas, and Emily and I were driving the kids to a park as we talked about the rental property. Nothing new. The rental property was all we'd talked about for a week. We decided to buy it, and that it would be the perfect investment. Property values were at an all-time low, and we were in a position to invest. We were well aware of the incredible amount of work it would be, and the high cost of the renovation, but the potential for a large profit would be worth it. I called our real estate agent to tell him to place an offer on the house as we were driving down the freeway. It was settled. We made a strong offer and would be ready to take possession soon. I hung up the phone and we drove in silence for 30 seconds and Emily suddenly said, this isn't right. I don't feel good about this. I was shocked. We had just spent days talking through every possible scenario and we both thought it was the right course of action. Then, 30 seconds of silence pass and suddenly she's against it? Logically, it made little sense. But I knew Emily was close to the Lord, and if she didn't feel right about it, even though logically it was a good idea, then I should trust what she felt. I called back to the real estate agent right away and told him we didn't want to make the offer after all, and that we decided we weren't going to pursue purchasing a property anymore. The instant I hung up the phone, I felt an overwhelming sense of relief like we dodged a bullet. Trust in that feeling has always led our family to safety. Call it a gut feeling or intuition or whatever you want. I know it's the voice of one older and wiser than us all. We didn't buy the rental property, and I'm so grateful for that. I didn't realize at the time how focused on money and work we'd become. We simply shut everything down for a few weeks. No work, no investments, no distractions. We were fully present for Christmas with our two excited little boys who only cared about Santa coming on Christmas morning. Best decision ever. Money has been a great blessing for our family. It has allowed me to buy our family a fabulous home, go on vacations, and more importantly, to fix so many problems and stressors that come up by simply paying for a solution rather than stressing. Yet money itself doesn't make us happy. In fact, at some statistical point, money does absolutely nothing to make us happier. The journal Nature Human Behavior published a large study titled Happiness, Income Satiation, and Turning Points Around the World. Of over 1.7 million people in which they asked about their income level and their satisfaction with their life. The study essentially found that if a person in North America earns between $65,000 and $95,000 per year, they are significantly more likely to have a stable emotional well-being than those who earn less. Interestingly, though, they found that happiness in life peaked at around $105,000 per year income level for an individual, more for a household. 
and that those making more money than that were unlikely to be happier. The phrase, money can't buy happiness, is unquestionably true, but it certainly can buy a reduction in stress if spent wisely. This study confirms what I have experienced. When I was worried about my business's survival and making it, I was extremely stressed. Then I reached a level where my motivations at work were much more than about money. It was about competition with myself and stretching myself. It was about delighting my customers and giving them a product that would help them. Years ago, a psychologist friend and I were talking around a campfire one evening. I asked him what his favorite question was to ask his patients to understand their problems and how he could help them. He said he started most of his sessions by saying, pretend with me that you have gone to sleep for the night and now you have just woken up. When you woke up, you found everything in your life is much better than the day before. What changed to make your life better? I found the question to be rather intriguing, a question that psychologists refer to as the miracle question, like as if a miracle occurred and everything in your life improved. We talked about it at length, and I was surprised to hear that around the campfire, every answer given was something to do with finances. They wished their debt was eliminated, or to win the lottery, or to be able to move to a bigger house, or to get a raise at work, etc. I continued asking that question in conversations for a very long time. I even asked the girl making my sweet onion chicken teriyaki footlong at Subway one time, and the guy fixing my tires at the mechanic shop. I suspect I have asked that question of nearly 100 people over the years. Only three people have ever given me an answer that wasn't a wish for financial gain. Not health, not relationships, not a stronger spiritual connection to God. No, it's money the world wants. I could finally understand it. The lack of money can be a major stressor in life and will largely control one's time. And yet, it doesn't take earning very much more money before a satiation point is reached, and suddenly more money becomes irrelevant to one's happiness. I have to go off script for a minute just to mention that I wouldn't say that just because people gave that answer, it doesn't mean that they don't have a deep spiritual life or desires to have a happy family or many other things. I think it's just the thing that's constantly on our minds because in this natural world, we have to survive and we do have needs. And sometimes the need of providing for a family can easily override the family itself. We have to be careful. One day at a family reunion, somebody brought out a time capsule we'd buried five years prior. In it, there was a video message that we'd recorded to ourselves. Here's what we had dreamed of. We'll probably be in our first house, and it'll probably be just a little one. We'll probably be saving for a cruise someday. I'll probably be working as an attorney. Ha. Our goals weren't anywhere near where we had ended up. Just five years had passed, and we had no idea of what those five years would bring to us. Yes, my business was successful, but as I looked back on my net worth calculator from the previous years as I tracked my personal finances, I realized there would be no way we could be where we were if we hadn't spent the money we'd earned well. When most people have a high income, they live like it. They get a massive house on a mortgage and buy cars, vacations, and stuff. Emily and I shared one base model Nissan Sentra for many years. She drove me to work and we crammed three little car seats in the back. We were millionaires before we bought a second car for our family. 
We lived in a starter home in a starter neighborhood and allowed ourselves just $200 per month each in buying fun stuff. Yes, our income was an amazing blessing for us, but we would have sunk under a pile of debt when the business dipped if we'd lived like most people when they have a high income that they think will last. Frugality had been a trait that served us very well, but I admit that sometimes we had it to a fault. I had an idea to give my kids a printed golden ticket for Christmas that they could redeem for a trip with dad anywhere in the world. I hesitated and squirmed over whether or not I should do it for over a year. We had plenty of money, but it still felt unnecessary and overly extravagant. Even though it could have been a really special experience for my boys to make memories with me one-on-one. -on -one. In reality, there was nothing keeping me from doing it. We were saving and completely out of debt and had plenty to make it happen, but I still hesitated for too long. Eventually, I pulled the trigger. I gave my two little boys a golden ticket. Ruger cashed in his ticket for a trip to Japan. My younger son was only four at the time, so I didn't think he could handle much of a plane ride, so we drove to a city a few hours away for a snowmobiling and skiing adventure in the mountains. At that age, he couldn't really tell the difference between a few hours away and a few countries away anyway. Those two trips were perhaps the best two weeks of my life as a parent. Even many years later, I don't think a single week has passed that my kids failed to mention something about those trips with dad. Each child felt so special that I spent an entire week just with them individually doing what they wanted to do. Cole and I talk about our snowmobiling adventure in Bergdorf, and Ruger and I talk about the snow monkeys and the terrible food in Japan. Sorry, personal preference I know, but ugh. I can hardly believe that I nearly missed those opportunities with my boys because I was pinching my pennies too hard and was almost too focused on work. I also realized that money should never be an excuse. I had as much fun with my four-year-old in a city just a couple hours away as I did with my seven-year-old in a country far away. It wasn't the money that made those experiences so special. It was the dedicated one-on-one -on -one time. Yet, planning those trips, all I could focus on was the cost. It was the cost that nearly kept me from that memory. After those trips were over, I returned to the business and was more motivated than ever to make progress. My goals for the following year were to simply reinforce income streams of the business by bringing in more customers to the same offerings, improving the conversion rate on the website, and further diversifying the income streams. In short, I would focus on the simple actions in my business again that brought in 90% of the results and not get distracted by other things. I did allow myself one side project, however, that I could work on as a way to diversify my income. My one expansion project for the year was a new website where I could teach online business to others who wanted to create their own website businesses. I originally titled the website coldfishsticks.com, remembering the experience of eating cold fish sticks in the Florida hotel room with Emily when we were poor. Quickly, however, I realized that was the dumbest possible name for a website, and I changed it. I spent the entire day trying to find a new domain name for this new website. Finding a good domain name is hard because there are hundreds of millions of websites and most of the good.com domains are taken. I got the idea to title the site Income School, a site about learning how to earn an income. Unfortunately, the name IncomeSchool.com was already owned by someone else. 
I looked up his name and contact information by doing a who is search and called on the phone. He wanted $10,000 for the name, but I was able to negotiate the price down to $2,000. For a short and memorable name like Income School, I felt it was a bargain. I decided that on this website, I'd share every detail of how I created a site, got website traffic, and then monetized it. I included every detail with screen recordings of me doing every step so that anyone could learn how to do it. I even created a video course showing every detail of how I made a flash sale that earned hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single week. I had to laugh when a customer emailed in a complaint that they didn't think the strategy was helpful for them. I had sold this person an exact step-by-step -step recipe that had earned me hundreds of thousands of dollars in a week by using a unique tactic that I hadn't seen others in the market employing. And yet this guy didn't feel it was worth $50 to learn. Why? Because he saw an incredible result and immediately his mind told him that he didn't belong there. He couldn't do the same thing and should instead flee from the opportunity. Humans are lazy lumps of lard when it comes to opportunity. We flee from opportunity and success by nature. We are one of the only living beings capable of making long-term decisions. And even so, we aren't particularly good at it. When we stare opportunity in the face, we fear what that new thing may bring into our lives and we shrink down to a comfortable place where we have always been. I have a mental image I imagine at any time I feel myself fleeing from a new opportunity that seems intimidating. It's strange, I'll warn you, but it works for me. I picture an anaconda catching a rabbit. Side note, I have no idea if anacondas even eat rabbits. I picture it coiled up all around the rabbit and ready to squeeze the life out of it. Then it coils back its head, about to plunge its mouth over the rabbit. It stares the rabbit straight in the eyes and... It gets squeamish, loses its appetite, and slinks away. That's what we do when we have opportunities and we flee from them. Instead, we need to stare success right in the eyeballs and give the anaconda squeeze. Crush the life out of that opportunity and go in for the kill. I want to illustrate the importance of my bizarre anaconda squeeze analogy with a true story. I had a meeting with a man who was relatively unknown until a few months previous when his book went viral. Almost overnight, he had 300,000 readers talking about his book. After a chance meeting, I struck up a conversation with him and found out that he was struggling to monetize the audience he had grown. And the book royalties were almost all taken by the publisher. My jaw hit the floor. With an audience of his size and in the niche he was in, he should have been earning six figures per month, but he hadn't figured out how to capitalize on his idea. I had worked with online audiences for years at this point, and I knew exactly how he could create a business around the audience he had grown. I set up a meeting with him and pitched him on a business venture which had virtually no downside for him. I started the meeting by saying, look, Today, I want to write you a massive check, bigger than you've received in your entire life. You'd think that would make anyone feel ecstatic, right? Nope. I could immediately read the expression on his face, and it wasn't excitement. It was terror. The anaconda had lost his stomach for success. He experienced a lot of success in a short amount of time, 
and his self-conscious was intent on pulling him back down to where he was before the success. He felt, I don't belong here. This is dangerous. I'm out of here. He told me he was very interested and excited by the idea and would get back to us in a few days with a decision. As soon as we left the meeting, I told the others he was going to decline the offer. I knew the anaconda had lost his stomach for further success. Now that you recognize what an upper limiting problem is, you'll see it everywhere. Whitney Hansen from the Money Nerd podcast was so excited about her idea for a podcast that she called in sick to work to record 16 episodes in two days. Then she never released the podcast for over a year because she felt too scared to launch. She had an idea and saw the potential for it, took the first steps and started to taste early success. So her mind fought her to stop and turn back to the safe life she'd lived before. It's a good thing she broke through her upper limit problem. She now gets over 50,000 downloads per month. Action step number eight, go read The Big Leap. No, this isn't an advertisement. No, the author of the book, The Big Leap, Gay Hendricks, is not my brother-in-law whom I'm trying to help out. I've never met him, but honestly, that book is so vitally important at this step of your journey in becoming a goal animal that it's mandatory reading. Go read The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. What we just discussed in this chapter about reaching an upper limit to your success and backing down from the opportunity is exactly what the entire book is about. I have been significantly more able to reach much higher goals after reading that book. It was as if the author had seen deep into my soul and helped me see things I had no idea were there before. In the book, Hendricks describes what he calls the upper limit problem and how one of the things that keeps us from transcending is that we are stuck doing work that is not within our zone of genius. The upper limit problem means that we achieve some level of success and we immediately work to bring ourselves back down to mediocrity. We feel uncomfortable being super performers because we've told ourselves so many negative things about ourselves that it doesn't feel like who we are. At first, when I began listening to the book, I didn't realize I was allowing myself to frequently hit an upper limit of happiness and success before coming back down to mediocrity. Yet, now I notice myself doing it on an almost weekly basis. Before I took my family on an amazing vacation, I found myself stressing to the max with my websites and working from early morning to late at night. My wife asked me what I was so worried about at work. I told her there was a dip in traffic on one of my sites and I wasn't sure what was causing it. She asked me if it was normal to see a very temporary dip in traffic like this. I realized it was. Yes, it's perfectly normal to see fluctuations if one of the articles hasn't been shared around on social media lately, or if it's the holiday season when fewer people are searching online. Suddenly, I realized there was no actual problem. The week prior was Christmas. There was always a dip in traffic the week of Christmas, and I knew that perfectly well. The issue was not that I couldn't figure out the problem. What was actually happening was I had just had a wonderful Christmas season with my family. I had hardly checked on work at all for weeks. We were just about to go on an amazing vacation with the kids. The problem was I had hit an upper limit of happiness and success. 
I felt out of control because I felt like I should be worrying about something or working hard on some insurmountable problem or else this happiness and success would go away. I had an upper limit problem. I still have to remind you about this every time we go on vacation, Jim. <laughs> it's true. I, I I feel like we're going on vacation and something good is about to happen. And so I, without even thinking about it, I think work must be a problem. There's no way I can just spend a week vacationing. So it may be a constant thing that we have to work on throughout our lives. So it's good that you realize it. But still, you're working up to the very last minute before we actually leave the house. It's true. Usually as like you're packing the kids into the car and putting the suitcases in, there's always one more thing I got to quick go do. And it's not that I even feel that way normally in a normal week at home where I'm constantly pulled by work. I, I feel like I can work and be home with the family, but there's something about when we're leaving on vacation, that upper limit is coming, and so I feel like there's a stress at work. There must be. I even feel this problem creeping into my life now. While I have worked on this book for years, now that the January 1 publishing date grows closer, I feel myself wanting to hold back and not open myself up for criticism. I find myself saying, People are going to rip this book to shreds in their reviews. It won't matter that I talked about so many of my failings and weaknesses. They'll just focus on the fact that I talk about achieving my goals, and they'll say I'm self-centered and conceited. That may be true, but I think the actual fear is upper-limiting. You have analyzed your work energy, decided on what you need to work on, and what actions will get you there. You're seeing the first bricks stacked up behind your house. Now is when the problems start. In the last chapter, you learned how to avoid good ideas at this point, and now you're going to read The Big Leap and learn how to not upper limit yourself.